As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This is AutoLine After Hours with John McElroy, episode 32 for Thursday, November 12, 2009, from Mustangs to Minivans. Watch AutoLine After Hours live at AutoLineDetroit.tv every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern or 2400 hours GMT. You can subscribe to this podcast for free. Try searching for AutoLine After Hours at the iTunes Store. Here we are again. AutoLine After Hours. Great having all of you joining us on the web and those who are listening in on a podcast right now. Hey, before we get going, you all helped us out getting into the podcast awards. You got us nominated. Now we need your help to go back and vote again. Uh, And you can do that at podcastawards.com. Go to the business uh, section. You'll see it when you go to podcastawards.com. You'll see it. Scroll down to where it says business. And you'll see AutoLine Daily registered there or, or uh, on there. Vote for us. You guys got us nominated. Take us all the way here. Get us an award. It doesn't open until tomorrow, the voting, that is, Friday the 13th. But help us out. You guys got us uh, all the way that you did. Let's go it all the way. Yeah. But, uh, but now let's go back to the, the discussion. As I always start out, here I am again Thursday nights with Mr. Auto Extremist himself, Peter DeLorenzo. And, Peter, great having you here, Thanks, as always. Glad to be here, as always. Okay, what'd you rant about this week? I ranted about BMW losing their way, building Uh-oh. building ugly cars. David's favorite car, but um, <laughs> I ranted on them about that. Okay, now, uh, I think we're going to have to get into that. Okay. And then we got David Welch here, as always, Business here, Week. Huh? Yeah, mm-hmm. great having you here. Mm-hmm. Great to be here, as always. And uh, and we've got uh, an extremely special guest, mm-hmm. Hal Spurlick. Uh, I call you the best product planner, definitely whoever came out of Detroit, and probably the best product planner that's ever been in the auto industry. Well, that you're I very kind. Of. Thank you. Yeah. And former president of Chrysler. And uh, uh, you've been out of the business a while now, though, right? Oh, a long time, yeah. When, when did you retire? 88. 88. Yeah. So you're what? You're 80 years old right now? In two weeks, yeah. In two weeks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Damn, I should good. look so good yeah. when I'm 80 years old, Hal. You look you're fantastic. Very kind. You're very kind. Thank you. It, it, yeah. It's unreal. Yeah. So, I mean, you can't get the gasoline out of your brain, your blood, can you? I mean, you, not really. You you, you keep uh, wanting to you know cheer them on and make them go, but uh, make things happen. Of course, you can't from the from the back seats, but it's. Uh, 
Uh, it's an exciting industry to watch, and, and uh, there's a lot at stake. What do you make of where, especially the Detroit three are? I mean, you spent 20 years at Ford. Yeah. You spent, what, close to that at Chrysler, No, right? 11 at Chrysler. 11 at no, Chrysler, right. okay. Yeah. Uh, I mean, y- you must mm-hmm. want to pick up the phone sometime and tell them, hey, you guys got to be doing this, that, or the other thing. Yeah, you always have your ideas on what, you know, on what would make some sense. But uh, I, right now, I'm, just, I'm watching them, hoping for them, and, uh, and hoping this whole thing ends uh, with some sanity. Uh, this play is, is hardly... Uh, you can't tell what's going to happen from Act One. Uh, you know, a lot of decisions have been made with the government actions at uh, at uh, General Motors and Chrysler, but there's so much up in the air. You know, number number one being industry Viam. You know, will we ever get out of this hole on Viam? And uh, if we don't, it's all over. You know, and uh, that's that's the biggest thing of all is how do you get this Viam to come back? Because at nine million, it doesn't work. Nothing works at nine million. No. Yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not, I'm not sure you flow a lot of cash at ten. If you're, you know, you're talking about some big-time money to do what has to be done uh, with everything that's in front of the industry, and you're going to need some volume to get that kind of cash. Okay, but let's say volume comes back and all. They st- the Detroit 3 still have a big hole to climb out of because <clears throat> there's still this perception out there that yeah. their products aren't that good. Ford's turning it. Ford <laughs> is starting to change the perception a bit. You know, a bit, a bit. But what do you think needs to be done in that regard? Well, I, think, I think all three of the... Uh, the uh, D- Detroit companies uh, are kind of in a hole in terms of consideration. Uh, they're not on everybody's list. They're in a canyon. They're in a canyon, and, and the uh, and they're uh, you know they've lost appeal with uh, the, the more educated populace. They've lost appeal for a long time on the coasts, where the imports are are you know of course just dominating the action. Can you really market your way out of that, or, or? you can't? I don't, I don't think you can. You, you can try, but you're not going to market your way out of it. You've got to create. You, you have to create something. You can't just do that with with good product. You know that's that's equal to everybody else, or maybe even ten percent better. You're, you're not going to do that. You're going to have to be. You're going to do something substantially attractive to change the consideration, and, and you can only do that with product. And you can't, I don't think you could probably even do it with quality now. Because, you, you know, if you get 5% better, let's say, than Toyota, I'm not sure that's going to bend it. You're going to have to do it with quality and unique product. And uh, that's a big challenge. Yeah, quality is just a price of entry. Yeah, yeah it really is, well, yeah. If you it really is, yeah. Speaking game. of unique products, Hal, take us back to your days at Ford and talk about the beginnings of the Mustang. Oh, boy, that's a while back. The... Uh, it was based on the, the Falcon. It was based on the Falcon. Originally, uh, there were some other ideas, but we finally based it on the Falcon, and we reproportioned the vehicle to give it a kind of a roadster kind of proportion. But I, I thought a lot about it, and the, the real origin of the— uh, there, there were two things at the root of the uh, Mustang. One, uh, in 1960, you had Iacocca coming in as the brand-new young 39-year-old VP of, of uh, Ford Division. You had uh, you know, Kennedy in the White House— uh, young bucks my, my, like myself around there, the youth was everywhere. And so there was excitement. And people wanted things to happen. But you looked at the company, the McNamara company, you had, you had the Falcon, really exciting. You had the Fairlane, <laughs> that was a honey, and the Galaxy 500. And, and the truth is, we were all just bored to death. Yeah. You know? And so we, we really wanted to break out and do something differently. So we, so we borrowed uh, you know, attractive attributes from other you know, from the roadsters, basically the classic roadsters. Well, you did the Mustang One concept car. It had nothing to do with it. That was and, done after the car. That was just a promotion. And um, 
But the concept really was derived from tr- trying to bring from the, the sketches, the, though, right? The design sketches. You were that concept came after, but it was no. The, the, that, that really had nothing to do with the development of the car. Really, that, that was a pure promotion afterwards. That vehicle happened to be over in research, and and somebody said, "Let's slap the Mustang name on it and put it out there as a as a promo." Once we had the once we had the pro- the project going, but it's basically trying to get the the the, uh, the appeal the appeal of a roadster at a, at a at a vehicle which could be out there with a low price. Was it was it originally designed with with female buyers in mind to some degree too? It was it was uh, it was a youth market. It was all the uh, all the boomers coming, all the young people coming. And we had no idea when we did it because it had a good package. It had a better package than the current Mustang. It had four comfortable seats, had a nice trunk. It was really quite a nice family car. And so it was, it had, it was bimodal. You had the young kids and you had the 40-year-olds who had kids. And it had a great name. It had the great name. And it was a great product. And, you know, 23 and a half. How'd they come up with the name, by the way? A good story behind uh, I, I, I'm not positive. You know, I was, I was in the product, not the marketing end of things. And I, I think it came out of the, you know, Americana, you know, you know, Mustang, Wild West kind of a thing. It came out of those origins, I think. But the, but the vehicle came along, and it was, uh, and, and in substantial measure, it was really introducing something other than vanilla. It seemed like everything that had come before was vanilla. You had different three sizes of vanilla. Right. And, uh, and that was the drill. And then the total performance thing came after the, that to just... Add, f- to add labor to it, yeah. yeah. So, so it, it changed the. I think it, it changed the scene by introducing, uh, you know, interesting attributes in cars that before that were simply vanilla plain. Maybe that's what we have to do today to create some interesting uh, action in the market to try to change people's minds. And by the way, the Mustang changed people's minds about Ford. You know, it, it improved the share, but it, but it changed how people saw the company. You don't have to, I don't think you have to change every car. You don't have to make every car be unique. If they're all good, but if you, have, if you have a couple or so, a couple or three really interesting different things, I think you change the landscape in terms of how people see you. At the time, Ford was a very distant second to General Motors. Oh, yeah. It was, it was uh, you know, way behind GM. GM was uh, pushing half the market, and mm-hmm. yeah. Ford was in the 20s. It, was, uh, it was, wasn't even close. Sure. So, Chevrolet alone was probably bigger than Ford. Yeah, it might have been. So who did been. you work on it most Closely on the Mustang. Where? Who did you work with the closest on the Mustang? Well, Iacocca was the, uh, he, he was involved in it heavily. Uh, Don Fry was my immediate boss who had product planning. Uh, Joe Orris and, and uh, Gail Haldeman, and all the guys over at, uh, over at Ford, Ford Design. Uh, the engineers, Bert Andron, uh, Prendergast, you know, just a whole bunch of guys involved with the product. It's funny now. You had today when you do a new car, you get a whole whole, whole uh, program management team. Yeah, I was the program management <laughs> team. I was a one. But man. isn't that a better way to do it? I mean, it don't was, you get results? The far meetings fast? were very small <laughs> and short. And short, right? The uh, and uh, even even old Henry Henry came along. He made one contribution. We brought him over and showed him the uh, showed him the the car, and we showed him the uh, the the uh, seating buck. And uh, he said uh, he said we ought to we ought to add an inch in the back seat. So we had to, we added an inch in the back seat for Henry. So <laughs> so everybody made a contribution. And that that will probably stand as the all time record for one calendar year of sales. They'll never be broken. Uh, yeah, in modern times, yeah, certainly, yeah, yeah modern. over, over four hundred thousand that first year. Right, it's remarkable. Interestingly, the the, the vehicle. I st- I still think people are missing missing a bet. The the, uh, the pony cars are are exciting and nice and they fill a great niche. But I think the Mustang niche was a little bit unique because it was it was a lower price point, 
and it had, it had more package, more, more family utility, but it was snazzy. It wasn't just an ersatz sedan. And I think, I think th there's a huge opportunity in that kind of a car once again. Well, you're, you nailed it. The price point, the value yeah. of the Mustang was key. Yeah, it was Besides, 2358, I think it was. Yeah. What, what do you mean they're missing a, uh, uh, a bet right now? What would you do in that regard today? I, I just think the, the, you could do a... I, I look at the market and about... About 75% of the market is just plain ersatz sedans in different sizes. You get small, medium, and large. And they're just boring as hell. And I don't think you're ever going to do the job of convincing people to look at you if you do that. You could bring those kind of attributes into, let's say, the small or into the medium. You know, bring, bring, bring something very genuinely attractive and sporty, but at a very low price point. And I think you could electrify the place. Well, I, and I've written about this, too. The American car companies have to go their own way. They're still trying to, well, we, we need to build a better Toyota. We need, we need to build a better Mercedes or BMW. No, you don't. You need to do an American car that's unlike yeah. anything else. Yeah. And go your own way and do what you, you're exactly saying. Put value in it, excitement, driving difference, can't get anywhere else. Get the right price point. Yeah. Yeah. And quit following and go, go do what you used to what, do. What do you think that? I mean, you look at the diff somewhat different strategies here. What Ford has a Mustang, and, and the price, the base model Mustang is still fairly cheap, and they do a lot of volume with the car for what it is. Yeah. GM's gone, I think, with a more expensive Camaro, and they're going to get good volume, but they're not looking for huge volume. They're, no. they're no. trying to make it more of an icon and get better right. pricing. What do you make of the difference there? You, you think they should go? Those are different markets. I think the uh, Camaro and the uh, uh, Chrysler Challenger are just kind of, you know, throwbacks, you know, for interest. They, they don't amount to huge volumes. You know, hard to make money on those. You know, hard to make money. I, I'm kind of troubled by all the low-volume cars. Mm -hmm. Everybody seems to have a, just a plethora of 45,000-a-year yeah. cars. And, and, uh, and I have a funny feeling that we just... We, we've arrived at the point where we, we, we price them high enough that we ensure that volume. I'm not sure you couldn't do a hell of a lot better with, an, with a completely different pricing, pricing strategy. Well, anal yeah, analysts say, well, we'll never see those volumes again. And, that was just and they price it so, that, so that's true. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and then Toyota goes along and happily sells 400,000 Camrys every yeah, year. Right, right. I wonder if that'll change. I mean, look, we have had a big shift in the past year here through the bankruptcies and renegotiation of debt and union contracts where they're not carrying quite the massive burden on every car and maybe they can price vehicles lower I don't know. and still make a buck on them. And, you know, now we don't know if that's going to generate the volume because of what you said when we first started off the show here that, you know, we're in this total industry hole here of volume yeah. where nothing's getting big volume right now. So once we get to a real market that's, say, you know, even, even 14 million units a year or above, with lower costs, can they start to play more of a value game and price it? I mean, now that's been the problem with Detroit yeah. for a long time here is that they have had uh, Apple's prices and, and you know, uh, or rather Apple's cost and Dell's prices on their cars, yeah. and they couldn't make any money. But so they had to try to get priced somehow, but they just ended up discounting, and they, they couldn't make any money doing that. It's a difficult model because uh, you, look, you look at any any of the car companies, you look at, look at uh, GM, uh, Chrysler, and Ford, and there are so many models you know, so many 45,000-a-year models. You know, how the hell can you market those? How can you make any impact? How can you get people out there to know what a so-and-so is and, and, and understand it and, and, and come to desire it? I, I'm not sure that model can work. 
for example, against the Toyota where, you know, they're driving 400,000 per nameplate. Uh, and by the way, it's the same nameplate in every market in the world. Exactly. I mean, I, I don't know how, you know, you guys are marketing experts. I don't, I don't know how you can uh, make it work with a whole lot of small volume cars. Well, GM proved that it, you yeah, couldn't make you it work. You cannot make that work, yeah. right. I, I don't know. I, I'm intrigued by Volkswagen, and that's another thing we should talk about yeah. on the show, too, is they yeah. surpass Toyota, which I'm— It's huge. I, yeah. it, which is a huge—and yeah. what I find fascinating about Volkswagen, remember, we're talking Volkswagen Group, so it's Volkswagen Audi, Seat, Skoda, <sighs> Lamborghini, Bentley. Who am I missing here? Uh, they got Porsche, and I'm missing one. But anyway, they've got this whole portfolio of brands, and they're rocking and rolling. And I think the reason that it works is that each one of those brands that I mentioned is really a standalone car company. Yeah, there's component sharing and the like, but it's not all built off the same architecture and this like. They each have their own P&L responsibility. I think Volkswagen's got this great balance between centralized control and decentralized autonomy. And Mm. I I think that's how you you drive volume is by really creating a a brand that people want to buy. There is an asterisk on there surpassing Toyota, and that Mm. is that, you know, where, where is Volkswagen the biggest? China and Germany. Those are their biggest markets. And who had the most aggressive clunker programs recently is, you know. Germany. Mm. Germany did for sure. And China had a pretty aggressive one as well that pushed up sales, I think, 16% uh, the first month they did it. And, you know, so they did get a draft off of that for Mm -hmm. sure. And Toyota had to ratchet back quite a bit on production because, you know, they overexpanded and they they saw a softening of sales. So there's, you know, are we going to see that on an ongoing basis? I mean, I think at a minimum you're going to see a bit of a dogfight here, uh, which I don't think anybody really expected. And remember, four years ago or five years ago, Volkswagen said, yeah, we want to go toe-to-toe with Toyota, and everyone started laughing because their quality was so bad at the time. It still is. It's still not that great. But another key thing is Toyota's losing billions, even though they've just cut their losses a lot. Volkswagen's still profitable. They're, they're down a lot in profitability, but they're still making money. The other thing, too, yeah. is you know, Toyota is fairly mature in a lot of the markets where they're playing. And so is Volkswagen, except in North America. I mean, Volkswagen, one thing that amazes me about Volkswagen's marketing is that their brand image and their awareness in the U.S. market is incredible, given the fact that they only got about you know, a little over 2% share. And think about, think about beating Toyota with basically no presence in America. That's what right. I mean. That, so, and wow, start, the biggest market in the world, they're not they are, here. They're building a plant here, and, that, and that's key, not just because they can do more volume here, but no. I've sort of got a theory here, and you were in the business, so let me know what you think. Once a company puts a factory in a market, then they're really committed to it, because eh, let's face it, I mean, Volkswagen has sort of sent cars over here that were really engineered for Europe, and they were over-contented, overweight, and overpriced to really get any kind of sales volume in this market. And they sort of had this small cadre of very loyal fans. Now that they have factories here and they've got to make that capacity work and get a return on that investment, they're going to have to engineer those cars more tailored to U.S. taste. They're going to have to get their quality up in this market. And, and it's going to force them to be, I mean, it's a commitment to be here, but it'll force them to stick to it because they've got this big cost. If you don't build a factory for two years, I mean, you, you're stuck with that thing for a long time. So I, I think you'll really see them kind of put their foot down and start to, you know, you sell the same cars they sell in Europe, but really tailor them to American tastes. And, mm-hmm. and they'll, you know, they'll, they'll probably start to have more success because they've got that capital cost that they've got to cover. I understand they're, they're making a lot of efforts to uh, 
uh, adjust their product line to appeal to this market. As long as they don't go push here. As long as they don't go off the rails like they did with the plant in Westmoreland, Pennsylvania, and they started doing color keyed rabbits that were color keyed inside and out to the point that nobody wanted to go. Well, they lost their German heritage. Yeah, (laughs) they lost the appeal of the car. Hal, you did another really interesting car, the the original Fiesta. Yeah. Uh, You were working in Europe at the time, I think, for Ford. it's a funny story, the, um, if you want to hear it. The, yeah. Oh, yeah. We uh, Icoca, became, <laughs> Icoca became the uh, president of the company, prior to which he was only North American. So he had the whole rest of the world, the biggest market was Europe. He didn't know anything about Europe. And, of course, immediately, you know, I was under, under him. He had to, had to figure out what it was. So I was running truck operations, and he pulled me off and said, I want you to go to Europe and be, be my man to find out what I need over there. And I didn't want to leave, you know, leave here to be a scout. It turns out he spent seven months going back and forth every other week to uh, figure out what they needed, and it was really pretty simple. The market in Europe was uh, 50% AB cars and 50% C and D, basically. And, and Ford had no B. And, and their C car was a rear-wheel drive uh, Escort, which was fundamentally unattractive. So the answer is pretty simple. You're losing share because the, the, the growth in the market is in the south of Europe and in the A and B segments. You're only in C and D, and your C isn't worth much. You, know, you, you desperately need to get a good. You need, need to get into front wheel drive, you know, transverse front wheel drive, and you need, need to get a B car. And so, he, so he was thrilled to have this because now he knew a lot about Europe. You know? <laughs> so, 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 so he started beating up on the Europeans. Uh, Come on, let's go. And of course, they didn't want to do that because you know they were, you know, that was expensive and risky and so forth. So, so he pulled me off that job and put me in a thing called product planning and research. And my job was to develop developed this B-car. So in, in nine months, literally nine months from nothing to a metal prototype, we created the car that was oh the forerunner. God. The forerunner. You, you couldn't do that today with all the, no, the you and, you know, no, it wasn't computer the final power. Car, but it was an advanced prototype. Of, okay. of, it, was, it was a beautiful little B-car, but still no takers. It turned out that because the market was growing in the south of Europe, the, the, the Europe guys decided they wanted to have more capacity in the south of Europe, like capacity would do it. <laughs> <laughs> so so they, they, they came with the, the thing called the Eagle Program to build a new assembly and stamping facility in Valencia, Spain. And it was umpteen million dollars, you know, to build that. And that was coming to the board for approval. And, and the product was going to be the rear-wheel drive C-car Escort, which would have been a disaster. You know, it would have been a disaster. So in the, the Iacocca, pretty smart guy, he put me on the agenda right after the, the capacity to explain my new little thing I was working. So they, they, you know, because Henry wanted it, they approved the capacity like that, you know, real short meeting. And then the, the, the next item came up was, was uh, me, and I, I explained how, you know, the, you know, A and B's growing and, you know, the whole, the whole, the whole bit in front-wheel drive was where it was going to be, especially for Europe, you know. And, and, uh, and Lee says, when we got the car downstairs, these guys did it in nine months. So the whole board goes down to the garage, and they're looking at this little car, and it's really cute, and they're excited about it. And I'm, and I'm, I'm working R.J. Miller. I'm, I'm, I'm saying, this, thing, this, is, this is the future, man. This is the future. And he, he picks up on it. He says, he says why are we doing the, seek, the, uh, the rear-wheel drive escort in this new capacity? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> we get back upstairs in the meeting to finish my little presentation. And R.J. raises his hand and said, Mr. Ford, he said, he said, why don't we put that new little car in that plant you used to prude? And it was, it was dead quiet. <laughs> it was dead quiet. And, and nobody said, yeah, let's do that. But, but I don't know if he said, we'll think about that. But it was like two months later, that was the plan. 
So, and, and, and because they had, they had sold half the cost of the program as a capacity program, the cost of doing the Fiesta was very low because it was only the other you know, components in the design and so forth. So that was the story. And then they took this, this uh, concept and they sent it over to Europe, and then Europe did the final car based on that. And it was tremendously successful. Yeah, it was, it was Ford's first transverse front-wheel drive car. Mm-hmm. This was Fiesta? Yeah. Yeah, and that was what about seventy five there about yeah, seventy three maybe something like that uh-huh. right, right in there yeah. someplace yeah uh, so yeah maybe five when it came out yeah mm-hmm. when the final car came out so what about the minivan weren't you going to do that at Ford oh yeah we started I started I, I had truck operations in seventy and seventy one and we had the the full size vans and we should explain to our viewers <laughs> this is the guy this is the guy who did the minivan this well, is the guy it was the Mini Max then right at Ford, yeah, Ford. because I've seen. Yeah. I've seen Clay's pictures of the yeah, Clay, right. and it's it's the stinking Chrysler minivan. This is yeah. the guy. Done Ford years yeah, before right, it right. showed up at Chrysler. Yeah. So we did the did the vehicle there, and it started back in 1970 when I had the uh, head truck. Started working on it. Then I had different jobs for the next few years, but I kept you know Lee kept had me continue to develop it. We finally realized you couldn't do it with you couldn't do it without front wheel drive, and Ford didn't have front wheel drive. And, you know, except for the, the, now the Fiesta, which is the wrong size. So it made it expensive, comparatively, and we couldn't sell it. We couldn't convince the management, even though Lee was a big advocate for it. And we had research that said it would be a home run. It, t- it took like it took like seven years <laughs> at, at Ford. It took that long, and then we couldn't sell it. And then then I, Lee got sideways with Henry, and and I got sideways with well, Henry. Too. Well, what's the story in that? Because I always heard it was you pushing the Fiesta to come to the U.S., and Henry didn't want that. And we saw, you know, Lee and I saw the, uh, you know, the, the big move that came here in front wheel drive, which there were no front wheel drive cars in this country, and 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 we and we, you know, I was in love with the concept. We did it in the Fiesta, and you know, it was obviously the right thing to do in the escort size and so forth and so on. And we wanted, to, we wanted to do a front-wheel drive car for America. And it would have been leading the market, heaven forbid, mm. you know. <laughs> and uh, so we were pushing that. I and mean, we called it the blown fiesta. It was kind of a fiesta, but, you know, bring it out so the Americans could fit inside of it. We couldn't sell, <laughs> we couldn't sell that either. And uh, so it just kind of like stalemate. And there was this constant friction between Iacocca and me. We kept pushing, pushing Henry to go, go here and, and, and to lead the market. And, and he it wasn't comfortable doing that. So, you know, those things usually blow up, and this one did. So I went, I went to Chrysler first, and then he came over a year and a half later. And but Did you and immediately I, tell Chrysler, we need to do this minivan? Oh, I started instantly. <laughs> I started instantly, you know, out of, out of memory. You know, I didn't, take a, I didn't take a pencil or a piece of paper with me, but instantly I started to recreate the thing in the advanced engineering uh, areas of Chrysler and created the vehicle, and it was, you know, virtually the Minimax. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Is that, that's it yeah, right there? That's the Minimax. We got it up on the screen oh, right now. But it was, uh, wow. It's, anyway, it was, uh, <laughs> and then uh, flex. <laughs> we, we couldn't get it approved. You know, we didn't have the money. You know, the Chrysler was, was we, and we had to. Uh, Heading to bankruptcy at the time. Well, that's right. I mean, we had to so get. That would have been, what, 1977 was when you went there? Is that I right? I went there in, like, 77. But the, we, the Chrysler, the only volume Chrysler had, the only, the only market they had any credibility in was the compact market. And it had the, the Valar and the Aspen, and they were both. Uh, it was terrible cars. Right. Oh, and the most Horrible. recalled car in they, history? They, they, were, they were just unbelievable. And, and so, it's in the Valari, right? But, but they had something really special. Great one. They, they had brought the Omni and Horizon over from Peugeot and produced them in this country. So they had front-wheel drive, right. which Ford didn't have, which is a backbone of what we're trying to do. 
So we, we developed the K car using that same uh, front wheel drive setup and, and putting in an innovative car shortly after the two oil shocks in the 70s, along comes this front wheel drive compact, the first front wheel drive compact in America ever, comes in and the thing it's a blows it out in huge volume and it sells like, like hotcakes. And that, thing, and that thing developed the cash, basically, that allowed us to survive. That, that was Chrysler's survival. And then that, that, that gave us the cash to do the minivan. And we did the minivan. That changed how people saw Chrysler. And suddenly, you know, you know people said, hey, that's kind of cool. And the minivan came out, and it was huge volumes. You know, you know, two big assembly plants pumping them out. What's your car that you're most proud of, then? Well, those, those two. I, I think, interestingly, the, uh, the Mustang we talked about in the minivan have something in common. They both take the transportation needs of the American family. And rather than just doing Falcon, Fairlane, Galaxy, you know, boredom, you know, boring cars, they both introduce a new dimension to make it interesting. In one case, it was sporty appeal at a good price. The other case, it was compact function. You know, small function, but very functional, but, you know, a garageable vehicle. So it was introducing new value into uh, an old slot, an old uh, price and size slot. And uh, people got turned on by that. You look at today's market now. I mean, you've got crossovers of just about every size, shape, and That's stripe. That's compact function as well. Yeah. Sure. But, I mean, is there, I mean, can someone even, I mean, it's a terribly open-ended question, but is there even a segment buster out there now that you've sort oh, of tons spliced of and spliced <laughs> tons the of market? <laughs> in a, tons of them. Give, it, give us yeah, one. <laughs> well, you know, we talked about the Mustang. You, could, you, right. you know, you, you could do the Mustang again. I mean, small minivans are going to be hot here. You know, Go back to the original T one fifteen minivan well, style. Smaller than that. Smaller. Smaller. Ford's got Ford's got the, like uh, the what do they call it? Uh, Ford's got the small minivan. Oh yeah, uh, the C Max. The C Max. I haven't seen it, but you know, stuff like if if gas prices get where they should, something like that could be really hot. That C Max is quite stunning. Something like that. You know, gas got the four or five bucks a gallon. That'd be a home run. Right. At three bucks a gallon, you know, we'll see. You, know? you, you struggle at two dollars and sixty eight cents or whatever it's it, now. You really struggle. You better get your you better get your big old Buick out. You know? Yeah. And <laughs> we, you know, we were talking about this before the show about the need for gas tax. Yeah. Tax. On yeah, if the industry needs anything more, the one thing you could do to make the industry work, the industry needs volume, and it needs and it needs to be. Uh, it needs to have credibility with, with these sophisticated markets, you know, the educated and so forth and so on. And the one thing you could do, and it sounds crazy, that would, that would, that would jumpstart the whole thing would be a significant gas tax rolled in over time. Because what it would do is, is it, would, it would create a market for all this green stuff, which isn't going to exist. It would create a market for all the stuff that CAFE is going to develop. And it would create a market in which the Americans could innovate. So if I've written columns advocating both a gas tax and CAFE, because CAFE sort of tells everybody that, because you can still, even with a gas tax of, say, two fifty a gallon that gets U.S. prices up, you know, between 4 and 5, you can still have wild fluctuations in oil prices that are going to yeah. play with demand. And if there's CAFE, then everyone sort of knows where they have to be in terms of product planning and engine development and technology. <sighs> and then the gas tax makes the consumer pay for it, buy the efficient stuff, so you can get a return on small yeah. cars and efficient engines and hybrids. I don't have any problem at all with the CAFE in the presence of a high gas tax. That's what I'm Cafe with cheap gas is insanity. That's saying, yeah. I run this thing. I'm, I'm the head of the country. Here's the kind of cars I want people to buy. And so you make the companies make them, but the, but the people don't want them. I mean, who is going to want to put out all that money for a hybrid or plug-in electric car 
or, or a super small car if gas is at two and a half bucks a gallon. It's not going to happen. Could, not going to happen. But right. if you did have a, a high gas tax, and this is just throwing this out there, you raise the cost of operation. And for some people on the low end of the market, I mean, we've seen people go to public transit when gas gets really expensive. So if you make it expensive through gasoline taxes, mm-hmm. do, you, do you sort of crowd some people out of the new car market and then, and then shrink its size a bit? If you do that, I mean, look, I, I'm in favor of it, but I'm just wondering. I mean, I, I think for, for every good plan, there are some unwanted. Uh, there is that, but, but you know, the ultra, right now, I, as I understand it, with the uh, the problems, the the hole we're digging here in this country, you know, uh, people in Congress are talking now about value-added taxes, which would get big time into the cost of transportation too, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it raises a lot. It raises a lot of money. Well, a gas tax the size of Europe's tax would raise a half a trillion a year. Well, that may be better than a value-added tax because you'd not only bring in the revenue. But now you, you, you would think about it. If, with, with, ex, with expensive gas, you've got 250 million vehicles out there, most of whom get bad gas mileage. These people are going to want to buy something efficient. Right. The demand you'd create is amazing. What you'd do is you'd, you'd bring the volumes back to 15, 16, 17, 18 million a year. Bring the jobs back. You bring the jobs back. You bring the volume back. You bring the profits back. And you bring the American producers back, focusing on small green technology vehicles that would be in demand in the market. That's right. I mean, Bob Watts was telling me when he was running Ford of Europe, uh, I can't remember who was the CEO at the time, but was beating Phil Caldwell. Him. Yeah, that's right. It was Caldwell. Caldwell was beating him up because... Uh, you know, his, his margins on, on C&D cars were terrible because <laughs> saying, well, what's wrong with it? Well, you know, gas is expensive. People don't want them. You know, yeah. you get the opposite problem you have here. Well, yeah. And, uh, but, you know, we get the worst of all worlds right now because we're, we, we, CAFE is driving people to create these, these very efficient and very expensive vehicles. Talk about cost of ownership. And there's no market. There's not going to be any market with uh, cheap gasoline. It's really a scary situation. One thing that GM is talking about, we had Mark Royce uh, here a couple of weeks ago who's running uh, product engineering at GM. Uh, They're looking at doing a performance version of the Volt or maybe the Cadillac Converge. And they announced this week because they I don't know if you saw it. They had this stunning looking version of the Volt, but as a Cadillac, as a coupe. And they're they're talking about blistering performance out of this thing. Uh, you know, because the Volt right now will get 40 miles, pure electric range. After that, then the engine kicks on. You keep on going. But what Mark was hinting at, because he didn't really come out and say it, is maybe you don't go 40 miles pure electric. Maybe you cut it down to 30 miles or maybe 20 miles. But you have tire smoke and performance out of this, quote, unquote, green vehicle. But what's the point of it? What's the point of all that technology and all that expensive hardware and all the risk of having to buy, you know, hugely expensive batteries late in the product life. What's the point of all that if you don't need it because of high gas prices? Mm-hmm. Why not just go out and buy a zinger of a car that'll go like hell or be cute or be whatever the hell? You know, why not just go out and buy a car that's efficient, that doesn't have all that cost? Well, you're getting into, you know, I ask the same question to all of the companies, either established car companies or startups who are either going to sell Extended range electrics, electrics, or plug-in hybrids, and they all tell me the same thing. Well, you know, Camry, the average Camry buyer, you know, makes you know well over a hundred thousand a year. They can afford much more than a twenty-five thousand. I'm not sorry, not Camry Prius. They can afford much more than a twenty-five thousand dollar Prius. So there are a lot of people out there who, for social sensibilities and not wanting to look gluttonous, are going to buy these green cars. And I'm saying, yeah, there are some of those, but there ain't that many of them who are going to buy all of these Teslas and Fiskers and Nissan Leafs and Chevy Volts and Cadillac Converges and, you know, 
Prius plugins and all this other yeah. stuff that's going to be really expensive and super efficient. I mean, to your point, the demand won't be there unless fuel gets more expensive. On the other hand, if you could create the demand, which the gas tax would do, create huge demand, you'd turn over all those 250 million of gas guzzling, you turn over that whole fleet by big industries, and you drive new technology, everything would work. And, and in the process of doing all that, the, the Detroit 3 could create exciting product and, and crack the nut on consideration. And it just seems like without something, a sea change like that, this is a tough game to try incrementally, you know, be a little bit more attractive, you know, to try to inch your way in it or, or style a car 5% better. You know, it, that's a tough way to go. Yeah, it's a, it's a real tough way to go. And, uh, you know, going back to what you said before, the Detroit 3 don't have the consideration. And, no. uh, you know, so just doing products that you hope are a little bit better isn't going to change it. the game. It's not going to do it. That's not good enough. Exactly. It's, uh, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what it takes to, uh, maybe, maybe, this, uh, maybe this whole value-added tax that's being talked up now because we're going to so desperately need taxes, and we'll, we'll about tax the rich with what we're doing. And as we reach into the middle class, maybe they'll find it, maybe they'll see it's a better way to tax. You know, you know tax something that will incentivize jobs, that will create jobs. Value-added tax will, will reduce jobs because it makes products more expensive. Probably raise the same money with a gas tax. It'll create jobs because it'll create tremendous demand for automobiles. That's a big question. What are you going to do with, and you know, I've put a pencil to it, depending on where you tax gas, you could generate anywhere from $200 billion to half a trillion a year. It's a half a trillion a year with, the, with, with taxes like they have in Europe. That's, that's a ton I was of, talking about $2 a gallon would, would get you well over $200 billion a year. Yeah. So what, what do you do with the money? You know, I think first off, to sell the gas tax... You're going to have to reduce income taxes for lower and middle class people who would be more hurt because. You know, Fine, do it. You yeah. know? And, they, they, don't and pay, then, they don't pay any taxes now. They don't pay any income taxes and, now. And then, well, even middle class people who would be yeah. disproportionately hit because fuel is a bigger part of their household budget. Yeah. So, you know, you talk to politicians and say, what about a gas tax? And they'll say, well, nobody wants that. Well, of course, if you just ask somebody, hey, we want to yeah. tax gas 2 or $3 a gallon, and all that money is going to go to the federal government. Do you want to pay $5 a gallon? You probably have no. to do it in the, in the context of some other changes. Maybe, you know, cutting back, you know, we're going to have higher taxes. Maybe we can reduce some of the, the taxes that are going to be built in, in here now as, we, as you go to something like sure. a gas tax. Maybe there's a way to make it. Look like a good trade-off or something like that for for I, I, certain groups of people. That way, it does a couple of things. One, it helps you sell it. Yeah. Two, if middle-class buyers say have lower income tax, that means they have more disposable income, since they don't want to buy as much gas because it's more expensive. They buy something more efficient. What they buy with that money is probably more likely to be made in the United States, since we don't make enough of our own fuel. Yeah. So it could help the the, the trade imbalance as well. Well, the trade imbalance. The other thing, you know, we're gonna, you know, there's a lot of stuff we can't make, like oil, and, and, and aluminum, you know, and bauxite. You know, we have to import stuff. In order to do that without going broke, eventually, you're gonna have to be able to export some stuff. Well, you're never gonna export, you know, five thousand pound sea cars, you know, out of America. You're gonna have to produce cars that will work in other markets. And so you try to you t- you t- take an American car when you want to export it to Europe in an $8 a gallon market, it better be, you know, capable of competing with those kind of cars. So if we don't start producing cars like the rest of the world does, we can never be an exporter. And if we can't be an exporter, you know, out of, out of the Detroit 3, uh, it's going to be very hard to compete. 
to just be insular and just, just produce for your own market, they make a different set of cars for the other market, that model won't work because you're up against Toyota, builds one car everywhere, you know, per, per size segment, Volkswagen, the same deal. And the Americans are trying to create vehicles here for the American market and different vehicles. Uh, oh, the, that's a great cheap. point. No, that's a really great point. And that, that has been uh, the, the model here in Detroit is you build American cars for the American market. And yeah. like you're saying, you duplicate stuff for the you rest can't of the world. That. Right. But, but, but it'll make sense, though, if, 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 if you get rid of this, this ridiculously low gas price, it will make sense then to commonize your fleet. Ford's kind of doing that in their program, as I understand it. Right. But they're running a hell of a risk. You know, if, if when all that nice stuff comes out, uh, you know, the gas price is of gas, still cheap, gas is cheap, you know, it's going to be tough. Right. I, guess, I, I really don't think gas is going to stay cheap. I really don't. Uh, I was talking to a, an oil economist <clears throat> who's also a geologist about this yesterday. And, now he, you know, there are a lot of opinions on this out there, but he, he gave me a pretty detailed analysis on, you know, where oil production is going to be coming online you know, even with Iraq coming, you know, Iraq coming <coughs> up and Iran is going to be kicking out more oil. The Saudis are basically controlling OPEC and, and, and they're able to control production quite a bit. And he's saying gas will stay 60 to $80 a barrel, not counting, you know, futures market manipulation, <coughs> that sort of thing, until 2015 or 16. And after that, some of the traditional sources and some of the secondary sources like Venezuela or Russia start to tap out a bit. And after 16 is when you'll start to see the real spike. So we've yeah, got... But I don't know if the Detroit 3 can wait till 2015. Well, well they can't. If, if we, if, 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 you've got time to prepare for it If we it now. start now, and we, we could convert the fleet in five to seven years. You'd start now, you'd be ready for problems in, you know, on that world stage. Mm-hmm. If you'd start now. If, if we sit here fat, dumb, and happy at three bucks a gallon or three and a half or whatever the hell it might be, you know, through the next six or seven years, and get all this new hardware that's going in place, all based on on inexpensive gas, uh, we're going to be kind of locked in. Well, they are starting the engineering work at the car companies now. The policy work isn't starting. Yeah. yeah. Hey, it's, uh, I think, time for rapid fire. What's rapid fire? <laughs> rapid fire is where we get all the questions and comments from the viewers, and uh, we try to a- mm-hmm. answer them in, in rapid fire uh, <clears throat> You know, uh, a rapid-fire manner instead of, you know, pontificating. We try to get it done in about a minute per question. Okay. And it doesn't always work that way, but uh, once they uh, collect all the the different questions here. Ben, let's let's bring in uh, Tim from Knoxville. Can you bring in that question? We're still waiting. Uh, Yes. Uh, John, this is Tim, uh, Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, uh, I, I, I just wanted to comment. Uh, you were, y'all were talking about these uh, retro cars uh, on tonight's show, uh, talking about the Challenger and the Mustang uh, and the Camaro. Even though uh, a lot of the car, uh, all three have been doing retros, but uh, enthusiasts like myself and I'm a Mopar guy, uh, we cannot afford. Uh, we're family guys, and our families are raised almost, uh, but we can't afford to buy these retro things. Uh, although we'd love them and would love to have them, uh, why can't they make uh, base models with the big engines and the base cars to where uh, people that want them, enthusiasts, uh, can can buy them? Uh, that, that's my uh, question and comment. 
Thanks, well, John. thanks, Tim, for that. Bye-bye. And, and how what do you make of that? These retro cars, they're pretty pricey. And what he's saying yeah. is, hey, why yeah. can't I, why, why not go back to the original muscle cars, take a base car, stuff a bigger engine in it, and now you've got a performance car again. Yeah, most of the time when you, you, know, you create excitement in the car by, by bringing something to the customer that he couldn't previously get. If you can take a price point where there's a lot of volume and bring some attribute to it, you know, and suddenly that market says, wow. That's how the muscle cart was born, right? I mean, exactly. And, and, and that's like how the Mustang boring. was born. And that's, the minivan was that to a degree. But uh, it's a good example. You, those kind of cars in, in a smaller version, still hot, but in a smaller version with, with, with smaller hardware at a lower price point, could be electric. And didn't, and, didn't DeLorean shoehorn a V8 into the... Uh or performance gate into the, well, the, Lamont his, or the yeah. his engineer Bill Collins. They were the story is with the Lamonts. Right. Jim Wangers told us they were at Milford and they had a yeah. Lamonts on a lift. And Bill turned to John Z and said, "You know, we can we can put a the big engine in this thing. It just bolt right up." But if you could, but if you could take that appeal and find a way to bring it out with you know a thousand pounds less of stuff. Still exciting, still good performance. You'd have a hell of a market. Yeah. yeah. So I think your, your, your caller's got a great idea. Yeah. Tell me how to get a job at one of the big three. <laughs> there you go, Tim. You ought to get a job at one of the big three. Um, let's see. Ben, let's bring in uh, Jeff from Las Vegas and patch that Hi, in. Hi, Mr. Spurlick. My name's Jeff. I'm calling from Las Vegas, Nevada. I know that you're a passionate about the, the home building industry as you are about the auto industry. In a lot of ways, it's, a, uh, it's as important an industry to our national economy. And I was wondering if you see any similarities between the two and uh, have any recommendations. Can, as well. Can you bring that thing in closer as well? Thanks. Yeah. Ben, we'll, we'll need to turn that up uh, for, for the next ones. But I guess what he's asking is uh, similarities between the, the home industries and the auto industries. I don't know. Home, like home furnishings? I, I'm not sure. I, I'm no, not I sure think that he was... said building. Home building, home building. Home building. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I was uh, one of my retirement jobs. I was CEO of Pulte for about a year, and uh, different kind of a market. But, but I, frankly, I'm I'm a product guy, and you know, I love I love cars and houses are you know a big you know consumer product, very exciting I think, and uh, not as exciting as cars. <laughs> but uh, the market there's really other than that there's nothing really in common with the two. You know they're they're, uh, uh, I, I think the home building market and the product aspects of it moves a lot slower. Uh-huh. You, know, they're, they're, you know, they're still building. Uh, right now, they both have issues with credit. Pardon me? Right now, they both have issues with credit. Yeah, big time. Yeah, big time. <laughs> Let's bring in uh, one more call. Uh, my, my friend John Farrell from Pennsylvania, who's, who's really on to natural gas, and I'll bet you that's what his question's about. Let's bring John in, Ben. Hi, this is John Farrell calling from Westchester, Pennsylvania. <laughs> with a question for Hal. Taking your value uh, way of doing business with the low, low cost and higher volume and looking at the alternative energy problems that we're faced with, with infrastructure uh, not being in place for a lot of the different types of alternative fuels, and also the fact that the dollar is going down in value and the oil price is going up in value, and your suggestion on the show tonight about tax, uh, raising tax. How does this all work? I mean, don't you need to keep an uh, affordable energy price and an affordable car price? And what do you know about buy fuels where there's 
CNG and um, gasoline in the same vehicle. Yeah, I, I, I don't know a lot about that technology, n enough to even comment on it. But uh, uh, this is going back to your earlier point. I, I just think uh, we're being pushed as a country in the direction of uh, dramatically uh, more fuel-efficient vehicles and uh, dramatically new technologies, a lot of green technologies. And, and the thing that's missing is these are all very expensive technologies. And what's missing is the incentive for the, for the market to buy these new technologies that will cost a, a fortune. And, and the, the, the only way I can see to create, is to create a market for what we're being asked by the government and by the Green Society and so forth to produce is to create a, a higher cost for, for oil-driven vehicles. And absent that, I, I don't think there'll be a market for, for expensive green vehicles beyond the, the green fringe, which might be, you know, two, three, four, five hundred thousand people a year. It's not, it's not the market. Beyond that, it's, it's, it's uh, people who make e economic decisions. Good. Okay, we've got a, a question here from DeCray Higgs from Allpar.com. Great having the Allpar folks with us tonight. He said, I'd like to know what you think about Daimler Chrysler discontinuing the Plymouth brand and whether they should revive it again. Well, they're sure not going to revive it again because uh, <laughs> the, uh, the government was really uh, pounding them to get rid of brands and get, you know, get rid of complexity and so forth. And I think in general there's, there's, there's still... You know, unbelievable complexity in the American product vis-a-vis -vis the Toyotas and the Volkswagens and people who have enormous you know, volume efficiency uh, with the way their brands are set up. And I, you know, and you, you could debate whether they whether they should have kept Plymouth or not. But I think, you know, in, in the long run, if they can figure out how to brand the, brand their low-priced vehicles, they'll be fine. Did they start phasing out Plymouth kind of? Well, before Daimler was around. I mean, when that plant sort of hatched before. Daimler took over the company? Yeah, I don't know. It, might, it could have been. Or at least I don't they know. Started, you know what I think? They, I think they started marrying up the dealers, the Plymouth dealers, with Chrysler Jeep, or with Chrysler, and then they announced it when Daimler owned it, but I think that, that process began. Okay, our, our warning light says, we're on to the next question. I'm going to throw this to you, Peter. It says, uh, uh, this is... Uh, 012345 <laughs> writing in, who says, why are car manufacturer TV commercials so awful today? And why are the tire manufacturers making more exciting TV commercials? That's a good point. Uh, I think it's a, it's a crisis of leadership and direction in the car companies. They're running scared. They're afraid to, mm -hmm. to do bold marketing and... Uh, and then they shoot themselves in the head when they try to do bold marketing because they inevitably do it poorly. Yeah, but there's the, one of the tire companies has those Mr. Potato Head commercials that are kind of funny. Well, there's, mm -hmm. there's a whole bunch. And of there's another, I can't remember who does it. There's mm -hmm. another one that's just a great, I, I remember seeing it. It was a great performance commercial. I forget which tire company again, but I remember, mm -hmm. oh, the tire company. It's not, it's a good point. Very, very observant by... Hell, you, got, you, you, you watch TV commercials? You must have gotten involved in that in your career. Yeah, I did. I presented to hell a couple of times in oh, meetings. Yeah. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a really a, it's a tough decision. It's, you know, it's hard to market yourself out of the situation. This is, this, you know, marketing is terribly important. You've got to do the best you can. But uh, the solutions for what, what ails the uh, Detroit That's industry are way, go way beyond marketing. Great product. Yeah. Pedro Fernandez asks, do you believe that the one-platform K-car system that 
Chrysler used in the 80s could work in today's market? Probably not. I, I think it, it made some sense then because we, we did it because that's all we could afford. We had the, you know, we, we did what we could do, and it was with the market, you know, as it was, as I said, right after the oil shocks. But uh, and it worked well, but it, uh, I don't think it could work forever. You, know, you need you need more than that. On the other hand, I don't think you need you know six, seven, eight platforms, mm-hmm. you know, for a typical car company. Somebody told me all you really need is small, medium, large. That's about it. No. Yeah, I thought that was pretty good. In fact, that was Tim Luliet who we had yeah. on here uh, yeah. about a yeah. month ago or so. Right. Right. Uh, Scotty in Cleveland wants to know, how do you like the new Chrysler 300 ad, Nightlife? I don't know the ad, so no, I've seen David, it. Uh, what? Uh, I like it a lot. I, it, it's it's a somewhat watered-down version of the very sexy three-minute spot they showed us at the uh, uh, five-year plan presentation. Uh, but it's... look. Automotive advertising these days is pretty boring, uh, and, and Chrysler is, you know, the, the three elements of the Chrysler brand advertising are basically style, glamour, and there's a lot of sexual innuendo and, and you know, sensuality in these spots. And they're, mm-hmm. it's not ham-handed in the way that the uh, Chrysler Concord ad and Lingerie Bowl and the, uh, what was the other one that, that they had at the same time, the, the one with the sort of vague hints at wife swapping with the minivan. It's not sort of Maxim Magazine kind of crap like that. It's it's just sexy advertising. It's good stuff. I think I think it's outstanding. Peter, you want to weigh in on that nightlife? It's okay. 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 <laughs> <laughs> if he thought of it, it would have been yeah. bad. No, it's better than Celine Dion. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about Danny. <laughs> I'm going to truncate this one down. John W. writes in to say I I, I was tweeting today on some of the stuff that I got out of the Chrysler. Uh, 10-hour grueling marathon, which I call the Batan Death March of a press (laughs) conference. But um, I quoted Scott Kunzelman, who's the new head of engineering at Chrysler, saying that they think with virtual design they can do a 16-month car, i.e. do a car in 16 months' time. And he says, uh, how feasible is that, and what kind of quality might we expect? You, you, you're talking about doing a, a, a prototype in, in nine months. Well, what do you and think? that was only of an advanced variety. That was not you know, production-capable design. But you know, to, do, to do an entire car and, and all the parts and all the complexity, get it all to work, all the systems to function properly, all the parts to fit, I, I don't know. Maybe, the, maybe it's possible, but it's beyond, it's beyond my comprehension. I've never seen anything like it done. The only thing I could see is if you take an existing architecture and uh, it really an existing car and reskin it. I could see that being That's done in 16 months. That's There's a lot, a lot of wires poker with the length of these programs, too. <clears throat> When's design freeze? What did you start from? I mean, when these guys start telling me, oh, yeah, we're down to a year, we're down to 16 or 18 months. Yeah, and they had three years of advance. Yeah. 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 Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay, PT says, there's a good uh, yeah. name. Yeah. What do you think about Chrysler banning all who... Retired early, took a buyout uh, from any type of rehire. Uh, all of this was right when they had a huge amount of work to do. I'm not sure I understand the last part. But, yeah, uh, what do you think about, you know, forcing people out and not letting them be rehired? Uh, I didn't. I wasn't aware of that rule. Yeah, I don't either. Yeah. If, if true, it's stupid because I think under... Under Daimler and under Cerberus, Chrysler lost a lot of good people because they were simply downsizing. Yeah. And it's yeah. the people with options who leave. And if they want to come back now because they, they believe in the five-year plan or because the company gets some momentum, That's right. yeah. bring them back. You know, good people are good people. Whether they work sense. there or they work somewhere else. Yeah. Yep. 
How, how's your pension, by the way? How's that all worked out for you? So far, so good. <laughs> okay, good to hear. Because yeah. I know another, some other folks got burned. Well, they tried to take Wee's cars back. Well, they, yeah, the it's cars, they, the they cars have been substantially return. eliminated. Yeah. You know, they, they took all the... Uh, I talked to his secretary yeah. one day, and she was fighting to keep his 300 in his town and country. Okay, Dave wants to know, I'm curious as to what Hal Sperlick thinks about all the plans to use the fiat platforms. It's interesting. It, on the, it, it, again, uh, assuming a lot of these are on the small side you know, of what Americans are used to, again, it, it's a real roll of the dice if gas is going to be cheap. Okay, so it's, and, and how are you going to put all that down you know, other than with very low prices and low margins? So th- it, there's a crapshoot there. On the other hand, it, it could be the breakout. If there's any pressure at all on gas prices, and if there's any volume at all, it could be the breakout that could start to distinguish Chrysler and give them something to, to show these markets that won't now consider. So it's, it's an interesting, uh, it, it's going to be fun to watch. It is going to be fun to watch, yeah, yeah that's for sure. We're coming on that. The Alfa Romeo and Fiat cars have, even, even the small passenger cars have nice design proportions. And if the platforms at least enable that, that, that gives a good canvas for the Chrysler designers to come up yeah. with. With some good, some good stuff. So, not saying they will, but one of the things you have to wonder, you know, if the uh, do the Italians look at these cars and know how they sell in, in Europe at eight bucks a gallon? Do they think that's how they're going to sell here? <laughs> yeah, you know? good question. I mean, I, you, know, you wonder. You know. What do you What do you think? And this is my question of uh, putting Lancias into the Chrysler brand in this market and Chrysler's into the Lancia brand in Europe. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what to say. uh, How complex is that porridge? I just don't know. Mm, Okay. Um, What they all need desperately is uh, the whole industry. They desperately need some industry volume. You've got to get some volume in the industry. Volume will cure a lot of ills in the industry right now. It sure will. Okay, The Lonely One, 1851, says, uh, what was the reasoning behind the Dodge Rampage pickup, which is that unit body... uh, Based off the way back when, yeah, that was off the Omni Horizon. Yeah, that was just uh, I, I was against that program. <laughs> I had nothing to do with that. That was uh, a no ownership whatsoever. Yeah, I, I don't want to name who wanted to do it, but it was a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's see what else we have here. Asian Martin on Twitter wants to know opinion of union workers. Starting strikes seems like a lot these days. I don't know that we've seen strike, but we've seen Ford's contract rejected. And uh, uh, in fact, there was <clears throat> something else that Ford ran into. What was it down at the Claycomo plant? Yeah. What was I just reading? <clears throat> there was some talk of a strike thing today at a GM plant. Huh. I'll give you well, something. Yeah. I'll give you something. Maybe you can talk it up in some of your articles. There's a huge opportunity here. For years, in, in, in American markets where volume was pretty well assured, the game for the unions was to get more per hour and, and, and more, you know, things that tended to increase the cost of labor because la- jobs were kind of secure. And then with the jobs bank, they really were secure. But in a world where jobs are getting scarce, I wonder why can't the new genius in unions be to create employment? Why can't enlightened labor leaders say, if I really want to help people, the, 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 the thing shifts now from more per job to more jobs. 
Why can't, in fact, isn't that the answer for a Michigan? You know, why can't the governor team up with, with Gettelfinger and start to create jobs with a, with a different approach, maybe from the labor side? You know, again, but in this case, to create jobs, I think more people need jobs now than people need more money per job. It's a great point. I think that's a fabulous point, and I'd, I'd love to see that happen. Yeah. This kind of economy, you know, if you're employed, you keep your head down and keep it. And that's right. Yeah. You rattle the saver for money and bonuses when yeah. things in healthier times. This isn't the time to be uh, begging or demanding. Demanding more. more money. And, you know, it goes back to what you said too earlier, Hal, of using the United States as an export base. So, what an idea. You know, the dollar's weak, which is all in our favor. Yeah. Our labor costs are lower for the moment. Yeah. So why not take advantage of that to really push on exports and bring a whole lot of people back to, to work? And we need to shore up our manufacturing base anyway. It won't happen with gas prices where they're at. No. You know, it never happened. Well, look, we're, we're at the top of the hour. We ought to wrap up uh, the official part of the show. But Hal Spurlick, what a fantastic evening, fun. man. This it's has been, been great. Yeah. In fact, you wrote a couple me. of articles for me. I'm going to go back and take notes from the <laughs> tape tonight yeah. because you gave me a couple of great ideas here. Yeah. David, great having you here as always. Always pushing. Yeah, Peter, yeah. great having yeah. you here as always. I mean, it wouldn't be here. Without you guys, and, and Ike the dog even made an appearance, too. So that's, it's a full night. Thank you all for tuning in on the web. Uh, especially yeah. thank you folks at uh, All Par from coming in and Blue Oval News and everybody at wardsauto.com, too. It's been great. Don't forget to vote for us in the podcast awards. Just go to podcastawards.com. But, again, it's, it's been great having you here. Good evening. Visit our website, AutolineDetroit.tv, where you can watch us live Thursday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern, get your daily automotive news fix with AutoLine Daily, and in-depth analysis and interviews with AutoLine Detroit. That's all there and much more at AutolineDetroit.tv. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. 
Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.